Now, we're going to do things out of the usual order just a little bit this morning. Before we go into the scripture reading, I want to explain the passage that's coming so that it's easier to follow when it comes. But just before that, I wonder if you saw the article online this week. Clever title. The author began, the, the, the title for the, he chose for the article was this. You won't finish this article. And the thrust of his article was no matter how short his online article is, most people won't finish reading it. He begins, I'm going to keep this brief because you're not going to stick around for long. I've already lost a bunch of you. For every 161 people who clicked on this page, about 61 of you, 38%, are already gone. And so I would say, for about 150 of you that came to church this morning, probably 50 of you, or 75, or, or 25%, are already tuned out to the sermon. You won't finish this sermon. He continues on. After one paragraph, he says, so, so now there are about a hundred of you left. The next paragraph, he says, okay, fine, good riddance. Now we're about 95 of us. And he goes on further. Only a small number of you have even read this far. And even smaller numbers read all the way through articles on the web. Even though the articles are written by professional writers, spending hours generating interest in their articles. And their articles are only three or four pages long. He continues, The more I type, the more I talk. The more of you tune me out. And it's not just me, and it's not just my magazine. It's everywhere online. When people land on a story, they rarely make it all the way down the page even though they tweet it. How about you? Most people do not read the entire article that they tweet or that they send their friends a link to. If this is how we treat online articles, it's even more tempting to treat Scripture that way because it wasn't written by professional Newspaper writers who are trained to make a story interesting. And if ever we see that, from our perspective, we see that in today's passage. God has chosen to speak to us through his word to ancient Israel. And let's assume, and I think I can show you in a little while, it was really interesting to them. But it's so distant to us, it's a lot harder for us to be interested. Why do we pay attention? The basic reality is God has chosen to speak to us this way. If we really want to hear reliably from God, we've got to pay attention. It's the one mechanism he's used for speaking to us predominantly. And so I want to make this job a little bit easier for you today because the passage is a little challenging. You'll see in a moment. Okay, first thing I want to tell you is where we are in Joshua. Now, it takes a little bit more warm-up because we're in, in the beginning of a new series. Last week we started. The first couple of sermons will take a little bit more warm-up, a little bit more explanation. So let me tell you where we are. We're in the book of Joshua. This is uh, slide two here. The entire 
point, the book of the, the point of the entire book of Joshua is this, that God fulfills his promises. God fulfills his promise to Abraham. God had made two promises, three promises to Abraham, right? God made three promises to Abraham. The first one was he would have innumerable descendants. And by Genesis, that promise is fulfilled. And God made a second promise to Abraham, that he'd give his people land. And numbers, God started to fulfill that promise. But that promise wasn't finally fulfilled until Joshua. And even then, it was only partially fulfilled. So we see in Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 to 12, the first half of Joshua deals with this theme. Joshua leads the people to conquer the land. And then the second half of Joshua, now we looked at that last year. The second half of Joshua, what we're going to look at this year, Joshua 13 to 22, 24, 13 to 22, Joshua distributes the land. And so you see this emphasis on land. Why? God had made three promises. He promised his descendants, and he fulfilled that. He promised Israel and Abraham land, and he fulfilled that. Why does God stress the fulfillment of the land here? Is because he wants to make the point. No matter how desperate their lives look, no matter how many enemies are in the land, Eventually, when Israel gets kicked out of the land and they're in exile, God wants to make the point he keeps his promises. Israel can trust him. We can trust him. God keeps his promises. Slide three. So we see here that that God has fulfilled the first promise of the land. Now, what difference would that make for Israel? First of all, God's faithful. And there will be times in their lives that it doesn't look like he's faithful. They need to know he's done it. He did it twice. He gave them descendants. There's a whole lot of Jews. He, that was God's faithfulness to his promise. And he's given them land. God's been faithful to his promise. So even when their private lives look like maybe God's not going to be faithful. Maybe God's not faithful. You know, you have friends in this congregation. If you haven't been through a recent crisis, there's a, there's a good chance your friends have been through a crisis. What's the question that comes through? Is God going to look after me? Is God going to be faithful? And the promise of Joshua is God was faithful, not just to his first promise. There's a whole heap of us now, but also to his second promise. We have the land. That's the promise of Joshua and why it matters to them as they face crisis. But not just personal crisis, but national crisis, corporate crisis. Is God going to be faithful? Is he a promise-keeping God. Is he faithful to his promises? We have this land. And every time they think about the land or talk about the land, they have this promise. God is faithful to his promises. Now, what does it mean to us in our generation? The patriarchs, Abraham is our father. The patriarchs, they're our forefathers. This God is our God. And when we go through individual crisis, what's the question we ask? Is God going to be faithful to me? Or when we start a, a mission, you know, a, a focus, a five-year focus, and we want to do something significant for God, what's the question we ask? 
Is this going to go well? Can we pull this off? Is God going to empower us and be with us as we try to do this? And the only way we have to, to answer that question is to look at Scripture and what does Scripture tell us? God was faithful to Israel and gave them so many descendants. There's Jews everywhere in the world today. God was faithful to the promise of a land in the book of Joshua. And even in today's history, God has been faithful to his promise of land. So will God be faithful to us? You see, we are heirs of the third promise. God gave Abraham three promises. Descendants, land, and that he would be a blessing to the nations. And we're heirs of that third promise, that God will be a blessing to the nations through us. Years ago, I wrote a book against some stupid thing that was happening in missions that was really detrimental, really harmful to our missionaries in our organization and to missionaries around the world. It was really a stupid idea. Stupid ideas come and they go. They're popular for a while. They change everything and then they die. And I knew the idea would die eventually. But it was a stupid idea and it needed to be killed because it was discouraging to our missionaries and to missionaries in general. By the time I got the book published, it was already dying anyway, so I wasted two years of my life, more or less. But boy, no one will ever embrace that idea again. I do think I killed it. Other people have told me I killed it. Okay. It was dying anyway, but anyway. But here, why? Why do our missionaries get sucked into these bad ideas? Because sometimes the job is hard. Sometimes the job is inconceivably hard. It's hard for individuals. I told you years ago a story, I won't repeat it now, but about a friend of mine whose only goal in life was to be a missionary. And after overcoming many, many obstacles, he was finally a missionary. And then after one crisis, after another crisis, after another crisis, he got sent home. Through no fault of his own. God, this is all I ever wanted to do to you, do for you. Are you faithful to me? He could look at his life and say, no. God's not faithful. But he can look at the book of Genesis and say, oh no, God's faithful to his first promise. And he can look at the book of Joshua and Judges and the rest of the Old Testament and say, no, 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 God is faithful to his second promise. Will God be faithful to me? God's always been faithful to his people. And that's why we read these promises. Or how about the whole missions movement? It's not just tough for individuals. Do you know... More Japanese come to faith every year in the U.S. today than come to faith in Japan, even though there's hundreds of missionaries in Japan. How about the Muslim world? Is the Muslim world ever going to come to faith? How many people are going to have to die how many missionaries? No, no, missionaries get deported. How many of the few beginning local Christians are going to have to die before the gospel can be preached in the Muslim world today? And when they die, they're going to ask, is God going to be faithful to his promise to Abraham? Will this country, will this ethnic group ever be reached? And they can look at their lives and say, no, it's not. 
Or they can look at the book of Genesis and say, oh no, God fulfilled his first promise. And they can look at the book of Joshua and they can say, oh, God fulfilled his second promise. Now God's got a third promise. Do we suppose the God who fulfilled his first promise and the God who fulfilled his second promise, do we suppose he's going to ignore his third promise? Or do we know that even if it doesn't happen in our lifetimes, even if it doesn't happen through us, God is going to fulfill it. And so you read in Numbers, the census, and all these names, each tribal chief and all the leading elders in that tribe and a lot of the kids in that tribe, and the name list goes on and goes on and goes on. Why? They're boring to us. We don't ever read it. You know, if you read devotionals and you're in Numbers, you skip it, right? Every single name is a promise. God was faithful to his promise to that guy whose name we can't pronounce. He was faithful to that guy whose name we can't pronounce. He was faithful to that guy and his sons and his daughters and his grandchildren. And we can't pronounce any of their names, but God was faithful to his first promise. Many descendants. And then we come to a book, the passage like this passage. And we have all these town names that we can't pronounce. But what's the point of the town name? God was faithful to his promise. He gave them that town. And God was faithful to his second promise. He gave that group that town. And God was faithful to his second promise. He gave another group this town. And he gave another group this town. And the town lists go on and on and on. And the boundaries go on and on and on. And we think, this is boring. And what it's saying is, look, God has been faithful. Not just once. Not just one promise, but thousands, tens of thousands to that one promise. And not just one town. Not just one nation. All these boundaries, all these tribes, all these people have seen God be faithful to them in this second promise. And it tells us that because in our lives we are going to ask. You've probably asked it already, and if you haven't, you will ask it again. Is God going to be faithful to me? And if you have a vision for God, not just your life, if you have a vision for God, you're going to ask, is God going to be faithful to our church, not just to me? Is God going to be faithful to the worldwide mission of this church? And the only way we have to answer that, problem, that question is not by looking at our lives, because it'll look like God's unfaithful. Not by looking at our church. Not by looking at the state of missions around the world today. The only way we have to answer that promise is to go back to Genesis. God answered the first. And go back to Joshua. God answered the second. Do we suppose that suddenly God's character has changed? Do we suppose that suddenly he's not going to answer our promises? That's why we read Joshua today. We're heirs of the promises of Abraham. And anything we read about the land of Joshua, we're going to apply to our lives today and the fulfillment of God's promise, not only to us as individuals, but the fulfillment of God's call on us, the promise that we will be a blessing to the nations. Now, let me show you specifically what we're looking at in Joshua, the second half. All of this semester together, we will look at Joshua 13 to 22. Joshua 13 to 22, we find ourselves in the position that God has already given land. There's 12 tribes 
There's 12 clans, there's 12 ethnic, well, 12 clans in Israel. God's already given land to two and a half of them. But there's another nine and a half that haven't got their land yet. And that's where the book of Joshua takes us. In Numbers, two of a half of them, Numbers 32, two and a half tribes got their land. And they said, you know, they were, they were marching toward the new land. They were going to invade Canaan. And two and a half tribes came to Moses and said, look, Moses, we don't need to go to Canaan. We like this land. And we've already conquered it. We don't have to die if we stay here. And it's good land. We're happy with this. You know, leave us here. Give us this land. And in Numbers 32, Moses said, well, no, if I give you that land, then you're going to wimp out on the rest of the guys and you're not going to go and help them fight their land. They've helped you fight your, for your land and you're not going to help fight for them. So, so Numbers 32, Moses said, no, I'm not going to give you the land. And they said, look, we promise. We'll go fight for the land. Just give us this land. And so, number, and so Moses said, look, you promise. And he said, yeah. And then Moses said, okay, I'm going to give you your land, two and a half tribes. Now there's nine and a half tribes left that don't have any land. God has promised them. The first half of the book of Joshua, they fight for that land. And that's the whole theme of the first half of the book of Joshua. And now in the second half of the book of Joshua, Joshua distributes the land. Well, wait a minute. Joshua is going to say, okay, you can have this piece of land. And another clan, he's going to say, okay, you get this piece of land. Another clan, oh, you get this piece of land. What's the problem? The land hasn't been entirely conquered yet. So God's promising them land that they can't really control yet entirely. So there's, you know, will God be faithful to us? And so what we see in the second half of Joshua, the first half of Joshua, they conquered the land. The second half of Joshua, uh, Joshua distributes the land to them. Now, notice an interesting phenomenon we see in our passage today. This passage begins, well, just before this passage, in chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, what we see is this. Chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, he highlights the nine and a half tribes don't yet have their land. In chapter 14 to 21, the whole rest of the book is about these nine and a half tribes getting their land. And suddenly, in today's passage... He does not talking about the nine and a half. You see, he starts talking about the nine and a half. He ends up talking about nine and a half. And now we got one little paragraph about the two and a half sticking there right in the middle. Right? So the, the, the passage begins, this land to be conquered. Uh, the passage ends, or the, the, the next chapter begins, this land is going to be distributed right in the middle. He interrupts with this talk about two and a half tribes, which really belongs back in Numbers, and now it's here in Joshua. So what's going on? So what we see from a map is this. Let me just show you some idea of the geography. Okay. You see the Jordan River bisects Israel. About a third or a quarter of Israel is to the right of the Jordan River, ancient Israel. And about three quarters, two thirds, is to the left, to the west of the Jordan River. And so what basically happens in the book of Joshua is the land is divided. And then, next slide. So you've got three... Two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, half tribe of Manasseh, East Manasseh. Two and a half tribes get land on the east. The other nine and a half tribes get land on the west of the Jordan River. And so in this passage here before us today, what we have is a comment about the two and a half tribes to give reassurance to the nine and a half tribes. So here's how the passage develops. 
chapter 13, verses 8 to 33. First, we, Moses, oh, you know what? Any of you guys in high school, you've probably been taught this already by your high school English teacher, right? First, in, in an essay you're going to write, first you tell the audience what you're going to tell them, then you tell them, and then in your conclusion you tell them what you told them. Moses does exactly this. First he tells them what they're going to tell them. Uh, Moses already gave the land to the two and a half tribes. And then he tells them. Moses gives the land to, he gives the boundaries. He, Moses gives the land first to Reuben. And then he gives the land to Gad. And then he gives the land to Manasseh, half-tribe of Manasseh. And then, conclusion, Moses gave the land to two and a half tribes. Really simple to follow what's going on here, if I give you this outline. And we'll show you this outline when we read the text, because it's really hard to follow otherwise. But that's all that's going on here. Moses gave the land to two and a half tribes. And we'll talk about why that matters. But first, our scripture reader is going to come and read it to us. So please, page 160. In your pew Bible, you want to follow this. It is almost unique in all of Scripture. And oh, and the, the projectionist will scroll through, just so you can help keep track of what's going on, the projectionist will scroll through that previous slide, same thing in the next slide. He'll scroll through it as Gerald reads for us. Thank you. All right. Okay, so the passage again is Joshua chapter 13. Verses 8 through 33. Verse 8. The other half of Manasseh, the Reubenites and the Gadites, had received the inheritance that Moses had given them east of the Jordan, as he, the servant of the Lord, had assigned it to them. It extended from Arawer on the rim of the Arnon Gorge and from the town in the middle of the gorge and included the whole plateau of Mediba as far as Debon and all the towns of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon, out to the border of the Ammonites. It also included Gilead, the territory of the people of Geshur and Malachah, and all of Mount Hermon, and all of Bashan as far as Selika, that is, the whole kingdom of Og and Bashan, who had reigned in Ashtaroth and Adri, and had survived as one of the last of the Riphites. Moses had defeated them and taken over their land. But the Israelites did not drive out the people of Geshur and Malachah, so they continue to live among the Israelites to this day. But of the tribe of Levi, he gave no inheritance, since the offerings made by fire to the Lord, the God of Israel, are their inheritance, as he had promised them. This is what Moses had given to the tribe of Reuben, clan by clan. The territory from Aror on the rim of the Arnon Gorge, and from the town in the middle of the gorge, and the whole plateau past Mediba to Heshbon and all its towns in the plateau, including Dibon, Bamath Baal, Beth Baal Mion, Jahaz, Kadimath, Maphath, Kariathim, Sibma, Zareth Shahar on the hill in the valley, Beth Peor, the slopes of Pisgah, and Beth Jishamath, and all the towns in the plateau in the entire realm of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who ruled at Heshbon. Moses had defeated him and the Midianite chiefs, Evi, Rechem, Zor, Hur, and Reba, princes allied with Sihon, who lived in that country. In addition to those slain in battle, the Israelites had put to sword Balaam, son of Beor, who practiced divination. The boundary of the Reubenites was the bank of the Jordan. These towns and their villages were the inheritance of the Reubenites, clan by clan. This is what Moses had given to the tribe of Gad, clan by clan. The territory of Jazir, 
all the towns of Gilead and half the Ammonite country as far as Erewer, near Rabbah, and from Heshbon to Ramath Mizpah, Betonim, and from Mahanaim to the territory of Debir, and in the valley, Beth Haram, Beth Nimrah, Sakoth, Zaphon, with the rest of the realm of Sihon, king of Heshbon, the east side of the Jordan, the territory up to the end of the Sea of Kinnereth. These towns and their villages were the inheritance of the Gadites, clan by clan. This is what Moses had given to the half-tribe of Manasseh, that is, to half the family of the descendants of Manasseh, clan by clan. The territory extending from Mahanaim and including all of Bashan, the entire realm of Og, king of Bashan, and all the settlements of Jair and Bashan, 60 towns, half of Gilead and Ashtaroth and Nidri, the royal cities of Og and Bashan. This was for the descendants of Machir, son of Manasseh, for half of the sons of Machir, clan by clan. This is the inheritance Moses had given when he was in the plains of Moab across the Jordan, east of Jericho. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses had given no inheritance. The Lord, the God of Israel, is their inheritance, as he promised them. Praise God for getting me through that. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that. <laughs> Okay. So what's the obvious, I've already anticipated, first lesson of this text? Is God faithful? You could go to the Shehor River of the east of Egypt or travel to Ekron on the north. You could go to the mountain regions from Lebanon to Mishrafoth, Mayim. You could go from the from Arur on the rim of the Arnon Gorge. You could go to the towns in the middle of the gorge, including the whole plateau of Mediba as far as Diban. You could go to the towns that had been ruled by Sihon, king of the Amorites, in Heshbon. You could go to the border of the Amorites. You could go to Gilead, the territory of the people of Geshur and Ma'aka. You could go to Mount Hermon. You could go to Bashan as far as Seleka. And you could ask, is God faithful to his promises? You could go to the kingdom of Og in Bashan. You could go to Ashtoreth and Edrai. And you could ask, will God be faithful to me? And since we have a lot of young parents in this congregation, if you face a crisis with your children or in childbirth or with your grown sons, we could ask, will God be faithful to me? You could go to the territory of Orer on the Arnon Gorge. You could go to Jahaz. You could go to Diban. You could go to Bamoth Baal. You could go to Beth Baal Meon. You could go to Kedemoth. You could go to Mephath. You could go to Kiriathim. You could go to Sima. And you'd hear. You'd see. God is faithful to his promises. God has always been faithful to his promises. 
And when the nine and a half tribes who don't yet have their land and they've already risked their lives to conquer this broader territory and now Moses assigns them their specific land and they think, well, we got part of it, but we don't have all of it. And we're, some of us may die and we're going to fight to get the rest of this land. And they ask, will God be faithful not only to us as individuals, but will God be faithful to his mission on our lives? And they could go to Evi, and Rechem, and Zur, and Hur, and Reba. They could go to the banks of the river of Jordan. They could go to Jazir, and Gilead, and Heshbon, and Ramoth Mitzbah, and Betanim. And every one of these towns would be concrete promises, concrete evidence that God is faithful to his promises. God was faithful 60 times in one verse. God was faithful hundreds of times in this chapter. Many of these towns no longer exist. These towns are not in our country. But had we seen this, and we ask if, if God is faithful, had God done this in our country, and we ask if God is, is God faithful to us, we could look at Boston. We could look at Dorchester, Charleston. We could look at Lexington and Weymouth and Braintree. We could look at Quincy. We could look at Lowell and Lawrence. And he, if he had done this in our country and given us this list, we would ask, is God going to be faithful to me and my family? And we'd look at our town. And we'd see God had been faithful. We could ask, is God going to be faithful to the mission that he calls us to as a church? And we could look at not just our town, but all the towns around us. We could look at the land. And we would say, God has been faithful. Here's the thing. These are not our towns. This is not our country. But these are our forefathers. We are heirs of the promise to Abraham. We are children of the same God. So when that God has been faithful to them, he's proven to us that he will be faithful to us. And not just us, but also to the mission he calls us to. That God calls Ian and Winnie into Route 1 Ministries or to help with Route 1 Ministries. As God calls maybe some of us to join with them. There are insurmountable, seemingly insurmountable challenges in this sort of ministry. Will God be faithful? God was faithful to his first promise. Hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of times he was faithful to his promise of descendants. Will God be faithful as people seek to reach out to sex tra traffic victims and perpetrators? God was faithful to his second promise to give land to all these people in just these few verses. Hundreds of examples of God's faithfulness. Will God be faithful? It may not look like it. And we may not see it in our lifetime. 
But God has always been faithful to all of his promises. That's the overall message. Now, there's two more specific lessons we can draw from this passage. We'll take a look at it in specific detail. Look at, first of all, an additional lesson, a secondary lesson. I mean, you know, this lesson about God's faithfulness is the whole book of Joshua. But let's look at more specific lessons, a couple more. Take a look, first of all, at chapter 13, 6. What does God say? I myself will drive out these people before the Israelites. But what does he say in 13.13? The Israelites did not drive out the people of Geshur and Ma'akah. What's the point? We ask, will God be faithful? And scripture says to us, of course. He's done it thousands of times. Now the real question is, will we be faithful? Because you look at this text, and chapter 13, verse 6 says, God says, I will drive them out. But God doesn't say, I'm going to do it so you don't have to. God says, I'm going to do it through you. Now the question is, will we do it? And Israel's response in this passage is, no, we won't. And so we ask, God, are you faithful? And scripture comes back to us in chapter 13, verse 13. It says, well, no, of course I'm faithful. I've proven that. The question is, will you be faithful? Will you be like Israel? Or will you be like me? The second lesson, you know, apart from the faithfulness to God, the the, the second lesson that, that... this passage drives home to us is that we must be involved. And you know, one of the great things we can celebrate as a church is the number of our people who have been involved. But the question that addresses us all, the point that Joshua is making is, it's not just God, it also requires us. God has promised he will do it, but he does it through us. It's not just God who has to do it, not just God, also us. Now, there was an old story told about William Carey. Many of you would know who William Carey is, the father of the modern Protestant missions movement. Basically, the first famous early missionary in the 1800s. And before William Carey went out to India for a lifetime of missions, he was speaking at a minister's conference, all these clergy around, and he was speaking. And he raised this question. He said, Is it the duty of all Christians to spread the gospel throughout the world? Now, you and I think that's obvious. All Christians have a responsibility. But in in that day, they weren't sending out missionaries. Why was he the father of modern missions movement in the 1800s? Because the Protestants in the 1600s and the Protestants in the 1700s didn't really send out very many missionaries. And even in the first part of the 18th, they still weren't sending out missionaries. We think missionaries, of course we send missions. Our church sends missions. All the churches we know send missions. They weren't sending missions. And William Carey stood up at a minister's meeting and said, oh, he made the point. We have a responsibility to send out missionaries. And reportedly, he was told by an older clergyman there, young man, sit down. When God wants to convert the heathen, he will do it without your help and mine. And we think that is so ridiculous. But that's the question this 
text asks. The point it makes, it's not just God, but also us. We have a role in this. Now, we think that's silly, but you know, a lot of people hope that God will convert the pagans, that God will convert, say, the Muslims through visions and dreams. Why do they hope that? That way we don't have to go and risk our lives. Maybe I'll give them visions and dreams. No, God says them. God says he'll do it, but he says he'll do it through us. And we can take great delight in the numbers who've gone from our midst. David and Jackie, Jason and Ella, Eric and May, just in recent years. Lee and Diana. We can take great delight in this. It's not just us. No, sorry, it's not just God, but it's also us. The second point that Joshua would make to us is this. It's not just some of us, but all of us. Take a look at, remember, so what we have in 13, 1 to 7, nine and a half tribes. And then he switches all of a sudden to the two and a half tribes. And now he switches back, then he switches back to the nine and a half tribes. And then he finally comes back to the two and a half tribes. What's his whole point here is? It's not just the nine and a half tribes that have to fight for this land. It's everybody, even the two and a half. All of us have to be involved. You know, and it's not really good enough for us just to send people like David and Jackie or Jason and Ella or Eric and May. The point of this text is all the people have to be involved. All of the people are to engage in this. And this is why, partly why, in future weeks, what we're going to look at is a five-year plan, a five-year focus for us as a congregation. We will spend much of the next five years strategizing together to ask this. What can we do? And specifically, how can we use our vocations to further the mission of God? Because God hasn't just called a few of us to be missionaries. He's called all of us to be missional. We won't be missionaries, but we can still be missional. How can we use our jobs, our vocations? Some of us will enter vocational Christian ministry. God guiding and us obeying. Some of us, some more of us, will relocate our jobs as intentional witnesses in underserved regions of the world. Some of us, many of us, particularly younger in high school and college, will pledge their careers to God. Some of us, most of us, ideally all of us, will be able to articulate how God is using us. Joshua Chapter 13 calls us to this because it's not just God, but it's us. Not just some of us, but all of us. Joshua 13 makes the point hundreds of times that God is faithful. Joshua 13 asks the question, will we be faithful? We'll have a chance to reflect on this over the coming weeks how we can be faithful to God's mission through us in the world. Let's pray together. Father, we celebrate the faithfulness of God. If Your faithfulness, if it wasn't directly to us, it was to our forefathers, and we thank you for that. And Father, as we face crisis, may this be our confidence 
that you are a promise-keeping God. But we ask also, Father, by your spirit and by our discipline, that we might be faithful to you. Work in our lives, that we might succeed where Israel failed. Not because we're better, but because of your grace and your power. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks.